1: And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection.
0: Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host the Bobby Bones Show. And I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music too. So, wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app.
1: Hey, this is Annie, and you're listening to Stuff I'll Never Told You. As some of you listeners know, when I'm not doing this, this podcast, you can hear me over on my other podcast, which is called Savor, and it's all about the history, science, and culture of food and drink. Recently, we traveled to New Orleans, and our mini-series about our experience there has been coming out over the past couple of weeks. We just did an episode on food access and food justice, and it's a conversation that involves a lot of the stuff we talk about here on this show But this whole topic of food as art um, is something I've been thinking about a lot lately, Instagrammable food and how that's kind of become a thing, a way to stand out with freak shakes or the Bloody Marys with grilled cheese and steak on top. In this classic episode, let's look at the question of foodie culture, art, and all the stuff that revolves around that. Enjoy. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com
2: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And welcome back to part two of our holiday feast. We're talking about Food and food culture because tis the season to gorge yourself on whatever you want. There are always those articles, Caroline, about like how to enjoy yourself during the holidays and not gain 10 pounds and it's like portion control and you know what I say to that? It's the holidays. You eat all the figgy pudding that you want, um, and call me in three weeks when I when I can't fit into my pants. Uh, but in the last episode, Feast Part One, we asked whether or not food is the new sex, and we divulged how much we think about food, Caroline and I, which is a lot, all the time. Uh, but even though you and I are mild food obsessives, I. Would you go as far as to call yourself a foodie?
3: I would not. I actually dated someone who was so pleasantly surprised that I was open to eating stuff beyond hamburgers, I guess, that he called me a foodie. But I kind of actually recoiled at the description, which I think is funny because if you read articles about foodies, like, it's very controversial. People hate them. But then they're, they're, you know, they're considered snobs, food snobs. And people actually recoil from the foodie label the way that others recoil from the hipster label yeah. or the indie rock label or stuff like that.
2: They're definitely gastronomical hipsters where a hipster, the same way, a hipster never wants to self-label as a hipster because that would be unhip. Mm-hmm. A foodie, although I don't know, I do know some foodies will say, I mean, I'm a bit of a foodie. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Uh, <laughs> backing up with food culture, can we just for a moment take in how, like food, foodtainment, <laughs> food entertainment, has just blown up. Uh, We have things like food documentaries, like Super Size Me, Food Inc. Uh, Special food issues of mainstream magazines are all over the place now. Celebrity chefs and food reality TV. Entire networks devoted solely to food. The fact that we have on those food networks specials just about people making desserts. (sighs) Chocolate, just chocolate (laughs) shows. Uh, the popularity of food titles. There was at one point, um, I want to say, uh, Nigella's, Nigella Lawson, that's her name, right? Uh, her book was outselling Fifty Shades of Grey because you know what? F- people are, can have sex, but we really want food more than that. And we want to look at pictures of food all the time.
3: And what would you call those pictures of food nowadays? I would call it food pornography. That's right. That is the term, and that's a lot of what we're, we will be talking about today. Because, you know, you mentioned the whole, like, food culture that's arisen and how we have all these shows and networks and movies dedicated to it. The f- the food network, like, I can't even watch it because I just get so hungry. Yeah. It makes me so
2: sad. Yeah. But we're going to get into the science of, of why all of that that food on that you're watching on the television makes you hungry in your brain. <laughs> but may we first take a little uh, a little etymological side trip into like when we started using these terms like foodie and food porn because the history is actually longer than i assumed that it would be yeah what is it well check this out foodie shows up in the oxford english dictionary for the first time in 1980 in reference to salivating patrons of a parisian Restaurant, and it was predated by the term foodist in the late nineteenth century. So
3: That's, that sounds like you're you're against certain foods. A foodist, you're a foodist.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, and then gastro porn pops up in the New York Review of Books in nineteen seventy seven in an article by Andrew Cockburn that was talking about the sensuous language of cooking instructions. Whereas you know, if you open up the Joy of Cooking, that is not a food porn. Uh, recipe book. Too many words. At all. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid, I really enjoyed being in the kitchen, and uh, my mom always cooked from The Joy of Cooking. She loved it. But we had this Better Homes Than Gardens cookbook from probably the, uh, like, 60s or 70s, and it had, like, technicolor photographs of all these cakes and casseroles, and I always wanted to cook. From that one, I thought the recipes were inherently better than Joy of Cooking, which just looked so boring. Uh, call me call me a foodist, <laughs> but then in 1984, food porn is thought to have been coined by uh, Rosalind Coward in her book *Female Desire*, when she's talking about how you know women are because of uh, uh, patriarchal gender roles have to stay in the kitchen and uh, fulfill their Sexual, you know, expectations by through cooking as well.
3: Yeah, she said it's an act of servitude. Yeah, which I mean, that could be a whole podcast on its own cooking and gender and feminism and stuff. We won't go there.
2: And even beyond food porn, we still keep coming up with more specific words to describe these food cultures that are coming up, such as in 2007, locavore was named the word of the year by the new Oxford. American Dictionary. We love to talk about what we eat, how we eat. We take Instagram pictures of, you know, dumplings and seaweed salads. I'm just yeah. now thinking of food. <laughs> and speaking of Instagram, I would say that the internet and social media in particular has fed huh, the rise of foodie culture because think about just going on to Pinterest. It is a smorgasbord. Uh, yes, I'm getting in as many food puns as possible. <laughs> it is a smorgasbord of food porn. It's like the Playboy of food porn, that Pinterest.
3: Well, yeah, these food pictures are very popular. This is not a Women's Health article from October 2012. Lots of food sites, just like you talked about how you didn't want to cook from the joy of cooking. You wanted to cook from Better Homes and Gardens with all the pictures in it. Yeah. Side note, my mother has about 7,000 of those books. She has begged my father to stop giving them to her. Anyway, they say that lots of food sites have diverged from being recipe-driven and instead feature these panned-in shots of glistening foods. You're talking about Instagram and stuff food images are the fastest growing category on Pinterest. Flickr's food porn group Mm -hmm. alone has nearly 600,000 images. And marketing firm 360i found that pictures of desserts, if you're curious, are the most likely to be shared online. So I think it's interesting to ask what the heck are all these food images doing to us?
2: Well, I think that maybe the logic goes that it's fine if we're just looking, especially for something like desserts, which we know, you know, on the on the food pyramid, that I guess the food pyramid is now on, it's a, a relic of a bygone era. On the food plate, <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the part for desserts, it's like, I don't even think dessert's on the new food plate because yeah. it's not good for us, obviously. So we can look... But we can't touch. Right. So that's so it's fine. We're just going to stare at all those cinnamon buns and it's not going to have a negative effect on our eating habits. Right. Because we're not actually eating it. Tell me that's right, Caroline. That's not right. Oh, gosh.
3: Well, for most of us, it's not right. I know it's not right for me. Like I actively have to avoid Food Network because I, I look at that TV show and I, or the whole network and I'm just like, but I want all of it. And then I overeat chips. And it's just not satisfying, and so then I seek out brownies, and it's a cycle of depression. That's why I'm going to start a cooking show <laughs>
2: called The Kale Show. <laughs> I d- yeah, okay. I'll see what inventive things you can come up with with kale. Kale chips are incredible. Don't get me started on kale. I'm serious. Yeah. It is a cornerstone of my diet.
3: Well, that, uh, that women's health article pointed out that these photos and shows and, you know, whatever you're looking at, actually provoke real emotional and physical hunger that can be tough to control. That's coming from neuroscientist Laura Martin. And she also pointed out that those who are overweight actually appear to be more sensitive to the effect of viewing all of that irresistible food on TV or in magazines.
2: Which might go back to like brain chemistry that we've talked about before um, in our podcast on hormones and obesity. And there does seem to be something that will tripwire that and it probably also has to do with how food porn exploits humans innate quote-unquote super normal stimuli which essentially means we are hardwired to want food and especially fatty food so in a way that food porn is is really delicious to our brain <laughs> Our brain mouth. Yes. Ugh. Because back in the day, and we mentioned this in Feast Part 1, that back in the of our, in our evolutionary forefathers, for humans, um, food was scarce. Mm-hmm. And so we not only were hardware to see food and want that food, but also the food that would give us the most energy. So unfortunately today, it would be something like lasagna dripping with cheese yeah. and... Cheese, cheese, cheese—that's cheese. all we want—is
3: cheese. Yeah, there have actually been a lot of studies on this effect, the effect of viewing food porn, basically. In the journal, <laughs> journal, in the Journal of Neuroscience, back in April 2012, they found that viewing images of that delicious food lit up our brain's reward center and caused women with the most active mental response to overeat. Similarly, in obesity, they found that simply seeing food increases levels of ghrelin, which is the hunger hormone, which is what Kristen was talking about.
2: But there is a bit of good news to all of this food porn obsession, and that is if we see the food porn, and then we, you know, if we're on Pinterest, say, and we click on that food porn and land on the recipe and cook that recipe, unless, of course, it is for something like a chocolate volcano deep fried with bacon... (laughs) um if we cook for ourselves and are stimulated by a, a food porn to do that then we have we do have a better chance of eating better it's more like don't stare if you're eating looking at a lot of food porn than eating a lot of processed food or going out to eat then you might be in for it
3: rebecca orchant over at the huffington post in october 2012 actually argues that this whole Food porn being damaging is baseless. She thinks it's crazy, uh, and this comes after uh, a Dr. Oz show where he talked about the effects of viewing food images and the concerns, the health issues, things like that. But Orchan argues that, well, double argue here. She says, arguing that food porn makes you fat is akin to arguing that regular porn makes you a sex addict. It's not only incorrect, it's pretty irresponsible.
2: Yeah, I, I think that um, some of the fears around food porn, I mean, even the fact that we call it food porn, um, are overblown. But still, though, just going on to social media networks, onto logging on Facebook, getting on Instagram, Pinterest, and seeing how obsessively people, and especially young people, too, document What they are eating at restaurants and what they are making at home, because usually it'll be something kind of impressive, Mm -hmm. uh, or at least like that looks incredibly delicious. Like if it's a sandwich, it's not going to be a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It's going to be like, you know, whatever goes into an incredible sandwich. Something
3: multi-layered, maybe with sprouts. Something involving prosciutto.
0: (laughs) Okay.
1: So, you'll want to enjoy your Good Girls
0: experience in a spoiler-free zone. The all-new, all-hilarious season of Good Girls, Sundays on NBC and streamed anytime. But,
2: um... It seems to be some kind of new marker for how like food cultured you are. Oh look, I, oh this this image. Oh, this is of this little Vietnamese place. Like you've probably never heard of it. Yeah, kind of. You you wouldn't
3: have heard of it.
2: Yeah, it's a strange. Like I do think there's an argument to be made of how food is a new sort of uh, cultural status symbol.
3: Yeah, there is the argument that. Food is replacing art. Well, I mean, there have been all the arguments. Food is the new sex. Food is the new art. Food is the new indie rock music. Right. All of these things. But the uh, food replacing art argument gets, gets a lot of play over at New York Times. This is William Derisiewicz, who in October 2012 wrote an impassioned opinion piece about food and art. He basically says that we are in danger. This is a quote We are in danger of confusing our palates with our souls, Kristen. Oh, dear. Yeah, because uh, food, he says, food is not art, people. We start, both start by addressing the senses. So good food, good art, you're addressing the senses. But food doesn't express emotion. It doesn't give you insight into other people. It doesn't help you see the world in a new way or force you to take an inventory of your soul.
2: Yeah, uh, he, he goes on to say that we are now reading the gospel according to, not Joyce or Proust, but to Michael Pollan and Alice Waters. Uh, and, like, totally understand what he says, but it's like these these broad brush claims that food is replacing everything. Food is the new sex, like you said. Food, are, food is the new art. But food is simply, I feel like a lot of this foodie culture is coming out of, like, the... Accessibility of food yeah. and not just any old food, but good food to where there's so much available that, yes, it is a marker of taste if you can sift through that and find and choose. The quote unquote better stuff. Obviously, like art, different people have different tastes. And there's also the thing of, you know, accessibility of, you know, can you go out and afford to eat at Alice Waters restaurant or can you go out and afford to buy a Jackson Pollock? (laughs) In which case, like, yes, I realized those tabs would be much larger, but still. Well, yeah, I mean, you can go to access
3: really. Not only excellent but unusual food doesn't mean you have to go to a fancy restaurant. you can be a foodie and do all of your shopping cooking and eating from the farmers market.
2: Well, and I feel like that's part of it too like that uh, part of the foodie culture is sort of in the same way of uh, I would I think maybe asking is food the new like hipsterdom is mm-hmm. uh, even? even more accurate because it's there's that pleasure in finding the lowbrow and the stuff like you don't have to go like mainstream to find like amazing food. Like you can just go to like a food truck. Uh,
3: you <laughs> I know. like your hipster voice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your foodie hipster voice. Um well one of those foodie articles that got people talking about no, this is great that young people are exposed to good food or these people are ridiculous Uh, was a New York Magazine article in March 2012 where the writer points out that it really is kind of a generational thing. He says that uh, food itself has become a defining obsession among a lot of young people. It's now viewed, he says, as a legitimate option for a hobby, a topic of endless discussion, a playground for one-upmanship, a measuring stick of cool.
2: Yeah, he uh, the New York Magazine writer follows around Diane Chang, who is a New York foodie. She she doesn't do anything food related for her day job, um, and, but it's funny because she is one of the ones where she it, like the hipster label. She doesn't want to call herself a foodie, but she does have a food blog, and her Instagram is all food, and she throws food parties. And uh, he asked her to track everything that she ate for one week, and she spent three hundred and fifty dollars. Alone, just on food, and I looked at uh, all the photos of everything she ate, and it was an incredible spread. Yeah, which kind of made me, you know, look at my bowl of kale and wonder <laughs> how I could jazz it up with some quail eggs or something.
3: Well, yeah, I mean, it is—it is kind of not intimidating, but. God, it's like, how do you have the time? Like right. I don't even have time almost to go to the regular grocery store, let alone the fancy
2: farmer's market, and cook all this stuff. Well, and while all of this like foodie culture is going on and how it has become uh, this new mark of being cultured, especially among, uh, I do think it is something that is uh, very much among our generation. I'll be curious to hear from older listeners, too. But Nina Burley over at LA Times also notes how uh, this this food obsession is kind of ironic and really sad considering the fact that uh, a lot of Americans really can't even afford a decent meal. You yeah. know, the, the, we're talking about foodie and foodism from the high level when yeah, it's true like the average person is not Feeding themselves very well at all. Yeah. If they well, can afford to. she
3: pointed out that our our weird foodie, food porn, Food Network, Top Chef obsession kind of coincided with the economy mm-hmm. tanking, and so there's more to think about as far as food goes than just how it looks on a plate on Top Chef.
2: Yeah. So what do you what do you think though, Caroline? Like considering this new foodie culture that has, it's not necessarily, the foodies are not new, obviously, Mm -hmm. but it is simply more accessible, and for some reason, generationally, it seems like we are a lot more into food than we used to be, but do you think that drawing a parallel between that and saying that food is now, like, the new whatever, the new art, is valid? Well...
3: I don't know if I would blow it up to that stature. I think that websites like Yelp, to just to name one, have almost made eating out at fine restaurants or fancy restaurants or just a hole in the wall that no one's ever heard of. May, it's made it almost a competition right. to see who can eat the coolest food and write the best review about it and have the most check-ins at a place. So there, there are a lot of social issues around food.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And it does seem to be a young person's pursuit as opposed to 20, 30 years ago where maybe it was just stuffy older white city folk who were like, you know, going to fine dining restaurants and things like that.
2: Yeah, maybe a lot of it too is obviously there's there's the access to food, um, but also the in our personal lives, just it's a byproduct of uh, social media and how yeah. we want to overexpose pretty much every part of our lives. It's part of the construct now The this like public of the public persona yeah. that we are online.
3: I actually don't post any food photos online. Well, because most of them would be like, here's my Campbell's tomato soup again. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'm not really interested in people's food photos, to be honest.
2: I think I'm just gonna start posting like really like sad food photos. <laughs> like, uncooked yam like Uh a yam that you've done nothing with that's a sad looking food so get ready caroline
3: look at this half eaten box of quinoa that you haven't touched in three
2: months Mm. #sad #hashtag sad food, <laughs> uh, but I do want to open it up to listeners out there because I'm sure we've done uh, we did an episode a long time ago on gender differences among uh, chefs, mm-hmm. and I know we have a lot of cooks and chefs and foodies, whether you want to call yourself a foodie or not, who do listen to the podcast. So I will be curious to hear from folks. Like, do you think? Do you feel like food culture has become overblown, just in general? As it replaced, in a a way, art because it is so accessible? And do you feel competitive about your eating? Be honest. (laughs) We can can read your letters anonymously if necessary. And speaking of letters, if you want to write in to us, our email address is momstuffatdiscovery.com. And, of course, you can always start a conversation over on Facebook as well. And we've got a couple of letters to read to close out this episode, part two on Feast. But before we get to that, we've got a quick word from our sponsor that brought us this episode of Stuff Mom Never
0: Told You. Okay, so a recent study found that a great hair day makes you happier and more confident. But that same study also revealed that 95% of women don't feel great about their hair.
1: I can definitely relate to the confidence part because if my hair is doing something
3: Here's a letter from Chris on our pregnancy uh, sex episode. Subject line, pregnant ladies equal sexy. Whoa. Yeah. I just listened to your podcast on pregnancy sex, and I must agree that pregnant ladies are uber sexy. I always thought they were attractive and had that glow, but it wasn't until my wife and I were thinking about trying for a baby that I realized how attracted to them I am. During the entire nine months of her pregnancy, I couldn't get enough. However, that bell curve you spoke of did not apply to her at all. Don't get me wrong, there was sexy time, but her appetite was not nearly as voracious as I was led to believe by other sources. This kind of surprised me, seeing as how she had a pretty easy pregnancy, no morning sickness, back pain, etc until the very end when she had high blood pressure. So to sum up, prego equals sexy and bell curves lie. Thanks for the podcast. And thank you, Chris.
2: Well, I've got one here from Romero, and this is in response to our episode on child caregivers. And he writes, I listened to your podcast on child caregivers. Thank you for doing so. I myself was a child caregiver throughout my high school and beginning of college years. Like many families, I came from a single parent home, just my mother and I, and she didn't speak English. My mother was diagnosed with cancer while I was in the 10th grade. I didn't even have a driver's license, but I had to take her to all her chemotherapy appointments and surgeries and interpret for her since there was no one else who could do that. I broke a lot of laws and everything I could to make sure that she got the medical attention she needed, so much so that I would fill out all of her paperwork and knew exactly what medication she was on and what she was allergic to before the doctors would even ask her. I would fill out all the paperwork and even sign for her since her English was very limited. I don't want people to feel sorry for me since I think I'm doing very well for myself, but I'm writing you because at that age I didn't have a voice. That is why I really appreciated your podcast. In my younger years, I was the voice of my mother who was sick, and I don't regret doing it, but to be honest, and maybe it was a cultural thing, I never heard my mother thank me for all that I did for her. I was just expected to take care of her. Now that I'm an adult, I try not to relive those years, but if my mother were alive today, all I would want is the acknowledgement, a recognition, a voice of the sacrifices that I and many other children do awaiting the inevitable death of your loved one. Before your podcast, I really didn't know the numbers nor any statistics regarding this matter. So thank you for your podcast, which is a great platform to give people like me some recognition that we exist. And that letter just warmed my heart. So thank you Ramiro and to Chris and to everyone who has written into us mom stuff at discovery.com and if you're listening to this when it is coming out I hope that everyone is having a wonderful and safe holiday season let us know what you're doing during your holidays by hitting us up on Facebook Tweeting us at Mom Stuff Podcast, and you can also follow us if you want to check out what we're up to on Tumblr at stuffmomnevertoldyou.tumblr.com. And if you want to learn a lot about food and the science of food, and even recipes as well, you can head over to our website. It's HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.